Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, musician and writer Michael Copy has a new CD and book called Ashmore Store, inspired by a business in Tallahassee's Frenchtown. It's a part of Florida folk history that is overlooked. It's off the radar and off the wall. I mean, the characters that would come through there are not the kind of people that would be written up in the newspapers or in books, but they were real people. We'll discuss the British colonial era Panton Leslie Trading Company. Panton Leslie really started the company right around 1783. Now, this was a a Scottish-owned trading company operating in Spanish East Florida. Also, Black Seminoles. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. from don't much still exist but mister it once did cause I still recall a lot of better years back in Dixie as a kid before the shopping malls and all the interstates when passenger trains still came to town but what's good before they don't want no more Yeah, they're tearing the old South down Johnny Reb's statue still stands Out in that lonesome, empty courthouse square It's a ghost town now, after five o'clock Folks don't go down there That big box store out on the county line It must have broke that rebel's heart He didn't fight for much, that's right But he never damn died for Walmart They're tearing the old South down Trampling on the beauty they found But one great morning, Dixie's gonna wake up And then the South is gonna rise again. As a teenager in the 1960s and 70s, musician and writer Michael Copy worked in a unique establishment called Ashmore's Store. The sign out front said, We are small, but we have it all. Ashmore's was located in the African-American section of Tallahassee known as Frenchtown. Frenchtown was the, uh, it still is the name, but it doesn't really exist anymore, of the black business district in the heart of Tallahassee, very close to Florida State University. At one time, it was a bustling, thriving uh, business area. It was uh, part of a parcel of land given uh, by the nascent, uh, still nascent United States of America to the Marquis de Lafayette, who in his own youth, many, many 
many years earlier had fought, of course, alongside George Washington, had wintered at Valley Forge. He was basically a teenager way back then, so he lived a much longer life. And I think it was in the 1830s or so that Congress gave this parcel of land to him. They had just annexed Florida. I think that was 1820. You would know Mr. Florida's story. <laughs> and, and so they gave him this parcel of land, and it's pretty much... Uh, determined he never even saw the land, but the corner of it uh, extended into uh, Tallahassee, and so they got the name Frenchtown. Michael Copy describes Ashmore's store in Frenchtown as crammed and cluttered with a unique combination of wares. Working at Ashmore's exposed Copy to a wide variety of clientele. For 63 years, um, Rob Roy and Ethel Ashmore, well, she died uh, uh, before he did, but they ran a little general store that would perhaps best be described to people as something right out of Mayberry RFD, a little general store hole in the wall in the heart of uh, Frenchtown there. They were uh, white uh, white folks who had moved up from Sopchoppy, the little town of Sopchoppy. 30 miles south and opened a pharmacy there in 1946. And uh, Rob, Rob Roy Ashmore was a character. He was a true Mayberry RFD kind of character. He was a justice of the peace. He was a notary public. It was the Western Union substation for the black part of town. It was the everything place. If you needed something from truck tires to kerosene lamp wick to potions and salves to dream books, and I can explain what a dream book is if you want. You went to Ashmore's store. <laughs> of course, we need to know what a dream book is. A dream book is a, a, a pamphlet put out uh, uh, to help you analyze your dreams to find out the right numbers to win the lottery. So if you dreamt about a horse, that would be number 57 or so. If you dreamt about uh, falling off a ledge, that might be a number 102. And there's a competing brands of dream books. The two that he sold mostly were King Tut's and Aunt Sally's. Aunt Sally's dream books and King Tut's dream books. Today, Ashmore's store is boarded up and abandoned, and overgrown empty lots have replaced popular businesses in a once thriving African American community. Michael Copy. Well, if you stood out in front of Ashmore's store and looked across the street, there would be Nims's Groceries off to the straight across the street and to the left. And uh, Joe Nims was reputedly the most uh, uh, well-off, the richest black guy in the in the whole area. Um, he uh, had married Mamie Nims uh, when she was a uh, as as it was told to me, she was a, a real looker, an on the make twenty nine year old, and he was near death in his late seventies, frail and um, largely incapacitated. But uh, old Joe wasn't going anywhere. He lived to 108. <laughs> and they had become devoted to each other over the years. Around the corner to the right down uh, Macomb Street was the Redbird Cafe, which was the local stop on the Chitlin Circuit. And I think probably most of your listeners would know what the Chitlin Circuit was during the days of segregation. The black acts had to play in their own establishments generally. Um, and everybody played there. I mean, I don't know how much of it was true or not, but I had heard that even Duke Ellington had actually performed there at one time. Uh, Little Richard with his unknown side man, uh, a, a kind of a reticent guitar player named Jimi Hendrix off to the side. And uh, the Nicholas Brothers, the Dancing Nicholas Brothers, Ike and Tina Turner, uh, the major acts of the time. Um, next door was Yates's uh, black and white TV repair, because uh, color TVs were too hard, he liked to say, although it really was no difference. <laughs> and next door was the Totten Lot, a kind of a vacant lot playground that the city had set aside, tossed as a scrap to the black community. 
Uh, it was a thriving neighborhood, though. I think the only thing that ever really was lacking in Frenchtown, and everybody pointed that out, was a bank. They never had a bank there, which would have really helped finance the continued um, uh, um, success of the area. While Frenchtown now exists in name only, Ashmore's store lives on in the memory of Michael Copy, inspiring his new CD and book. The great thing about about knowing Rob Roy Ashmore and Ethel Ashmore uh, was that they were a part of a strain of uh, Southern history that's often overlooked, and and understandably because it's a minor uh, and um, counterintuitive strain uh, aspect of Southern history. Uh, left liberal populist sentiment. Uh, not every white person in the South was an overt or even covert racist. There were some progressive people, and the Ashmores were part of that. And that was a wonderful discovery for someone like me, who felt constantly uh, closed in by the uh, uh, stifling right-wing uh, ascendancy that certainly permeated the, uh, uh, the South and in Tallahassee, particularly in the 60s. Um, it was an oasis of uh, enlightened thought. My granddaddy taught me a long while ago the important things here on this earth. Like to measure a man by his integrity, not how much his bank book is worth. My money, it still had a story to tell, a true story most every time. Behind every great portrait, there lies a great crime. I remember myself sitting down at his feet, looking up into his weathered eyes. He said he'd live fair and he'd always fought hard, cause with evil you don't compromise. Though a frenzy for riches bewitches this country, when you pull back the curtain you find. Behind every great portrait, there lies a I did this album with respect and affection for Rob and Ethel and that part of town. Um, it's uh, I'm, I'm quite deferentially respectful of of that history. It's a part of Florida folk history that is overlooked. It's off the radar and off the wall. I mean, the characters that would come through there are not the kind of people that would be written up in the newspapers or in books, but they were real people, and I have a tremendous regard for that. And I hope it's reflected in the songs on this album, whether they're directly connected or not. The small, hardback, CD-sized book that accompanies the collection of songs describes the very colorful clientele of Ashmore's store that Copy was exposed to as a young man in the 1960s and 70s. One of them was named Emmett Goodman. Emmett was a good friend of mine. He walked to Tallahassee from the Overtown section of Miami. Um, as he told it, because one morning he woke up and uh, there was an owl out up in the tree outside his front door there. Uh, and the owl kept looking down at him and he kept looking up at the owl. And finally the owl said, Emmett, go to Tallahassee. And so he started walking. He started walking up the length of the state and about middle of the state, Orlando or somewhere around there, another owl came by or it might have been the same one checking on him, who said, Emmett, you're doing okay. Keep going. And so he walked to Tallahassee, and he just showed up there one day. And we'd play 
songs out in front. It took him forever to tune up. Uh, Emmett was a pain in the butt for tuning, but, but uh, we played songs for hours out there, he and I, from blues and country songs to even genteel parlor song ballads like, uh, I know his favorite was In the Shade of the Old Apple Tree, which was a parlor song from like 1904 or so. Uh, Emmett was finally uh, found dead one morning out on the street, and uh, they, they never found out who killed him or what the reason was. I don't think they really cared, to tell you the truth. It was, he was off the radar and black, and that was um, like Robert Johnson, you know, decades before. They never investigated the death of, of renowned bluesman Robert Johnson. They didn't really care, and I think that, that kind of attitude in the uh, general society, the white police forces, uh, extended... Far too long, far, far too long. Michael Coppy says that one of the things that he loved most about Ashmore's store is that everyone was equal there, even during the 1972 presidential primary. In one week at Little Ashmore's store, which is a smaller, was a smaller place than your living room, folks who are li- listening, um, racist Governor George Wallace. Uh, liberal African-American Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm from New York, Vice President Hubert Humphrey, and New York City Mayor John Lindsay all came through because that's where you went in Frenchtown. And, uh, and of course, Rob Roy, being the character that he was, he always liked to make the politicos just kind of cool their heels a little. There'd be some little old lady buying laxatives or cough drops, and he'd say something like, Hubert H. Humphrey, Vice President of the United States, I'll be right with you. I got a customer. And then he'd take forever. (laughs) Michael Coppy's new CD and book is called Ashmore's Store. The CD includes this arrangement of We Shall Overcome.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where you can shop for great books like Ashmore Store, listen to archived editions of this program, and find out about upcoming events. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. When I became of age, my mother called me to her side. She said, son, you're growing up now. Pretty soon you'll take a bride. And then she said, just because you become a young man now, there's still some things that you don't understand now. Before you ask some girl for a hand now, keep your freedom for as long as you can now. The options for shopping were extremely limited in British colonial Florida. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. He joins us now. Ben, the Panton Leslie Company was an Indian trading company in North Florida. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Panton Leslie really started the company right around 1783. Now, this was a a Scottish-owned trading company operating in Spanish East Florida. Uh, Many of the partners had worked in Florida and around the southeastern U.S. prior to the American Revolution, moved into Florida when it was still a British colony, and the Spanish government, not having the strong ties with some of the native communities that they wanted, they decided to keep these uh, Scottish traders around. So from about 1783, actually until about 1821, when the United States acquired Florida, the Panton Leslie Company, which after 1803 was known as the John Forbes and Company, uh, had a monopoly over Indian trade throughout not only Florida, but parts of Georgia, Alabama, uh, and all the way up into uh, parts of, of Tennessee in uh, areas uh, that far north. Well, you have some really interesting handwritten documents here from the Panton Leslie Company. What are we looking at? Well, as part of the Panton Leslie collection, we have about 1,200 documents. Many of them deal with business relations, so letters back and forth between the partners. They're fairly dry. Uh, there's not a lot of really interesting material. Uh, but what we're looking at today are, are inventories for goods that were actually being traded on the ground in the interior, in the frontier between uh, both Creek and Seminole Indian uh, tribes and the Panton Leslie Company. Um, so what we're actually looking at here is, is essentially just an inventory list. This is a handwritten breakdown. Uh, it's a relatively, it's smaller than your standard uh, 8 by 11 sheet of paper, printed on, or written on cotton rather, um, fairly hastily written. But see, we have a, a list of goods here, a check off of what's been uh, found at the store, and then there's a, uh, a note on the back that it was received by the Panton Leslie Trading House in Pensacola, Uh, And from what we can assume, the goods were probably shipped into the Indian country. Um, And there are a lot of goods here that that you may recognize. Uh, We have an order here for six gardening hoes, um, two beaver traps. Uh, We've got two uh, bags of sugar, six bags of salt. Um, But we have something here, uh, eight kegs of taffia. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that term. I really wasn't. I had to look it up. But taffia is actually a rum that's distilled from sugar. And during the late 18th and early 19th century, it was commonly used as a uh, trading commodity throughout the West Indies and, and parts of the southeastern United States. And throughout all of these transactions, you'll see a lot of a lot of this taffia being traded. Well, uh, this document actually was from uh, Osceola's grandfather, wasn't it? 
Yes, that's right. A gentleman by the name of James McQueen. Uh, and this letter is actually dated um, eight, 1798. So by this time, uh, McQueen was quite old. But according to a lot of the, the records that we've been able to find, uh, he actually lived uh, to be over 100 years old. Uh, so according to this letter, he was still actively engaged. He probably would have been his 90s, 80s and 90s by this point, but was still engaged uh, in the trade and was employed by Panton Leslie Company. So this letter is written to William Panton with a list of goods, uh, and he's requesting uh, these goods be sent back to him in the Indian country that he would then disperse to uh, some of the different clans in exchange for deerskins that would then be sent back to, back to Pensacola. Well, in addition to these papers from Osceola's grandfather, you have some here from uh, another trader as well. That's right. Uh, because Pant and Leslie, uh, the company was so large, they had a, a, an extensive network of traders, and they had a lot of people working for them at different times. So we have a lot of different uh, traders who, many of whom were uh, generally half Creek or half Seminole. Uh, they spoke the uh, the local dialects, but could also read and write uh, in English. And they acted as interpreters, but lived usually lived in the Indian towns. Uh, so we're looking at here another letter, uh, handwritten inventory from a gentleman by the name of Daniel McGillivray. Uh, and we have quite a few letters from McGillivray, so it's, uh, we're assuming that he probably uh, worked with Pant and Leslie quite a bit. Um, and in this letter, you see a lot of the same, a lot of the same items, um, uh, actually a lot of clothing. You'll see here there's some, uh, some checkered clothing looking for white shirts. Um, again, that taffia, a few kegs of taffia. Uh, but there's another item here known as a duffel, and that's a term we generally don't use uh, too often today, but a duffel is actually a blanket. And that became a primary commodity that a lot of the, uh, especially the Creek Indians, uh, like to trade uh, during the winter times, at least, these very heavy uh, European-made duffels or large uh, cotton blankets, wool blankets, rather, um, that would have been traded for deerskins. Great. Well, some really interesting items here. Uh, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. My mama told me, you better shop around. This is Florida Frontiers. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com explores the community of Black Seminoles in 18th and 19th century Florida. The, the name Black Seminole itself as a historical term is one that's used out of convenience by modern historians. At the time, what you see the Americans or any of the European colonists referring to these people as mostly as uh, Seminole Negroes uh, or simply Negroes or uh, some combination of those terms that, re that made it clear that they were associated with the Seminoles but were distinct from them. That was Dr. Brent Wiseman, professor of anthropology at the University of South Florida, telling me about black Seminoles. Here, he tells me about the rise of the black Seminoles in Florida. The runaway slaves that become known to historians as the black Seminoles first came into Florida after the American Revolution, after the 1770s. We begin to see runaway slaves making their way into Spanish Florida. And uh, these slaves from the southern plantations were escaping them basically across an international boundary 
clearly seeking their, their freedom or a life of freedom away from plantation slavery. And as they made their way into the interior of Florida, they uh, became acquainted with or knew of already the Seminole Indian villages that were uh, located throughout the central peninsula and sought out those Seminole Indians and their villages as points of refuge or places where they could be harbored and kept safe from slave catchers uh, who were coming down into Spanish Florida looking for what the southern plantation owners viewed as their lost property. Dr. Wiseman told me about the relationship between Seminoles and Black Seminoles. Black Seminoles lived apart from the Seminoles in their own villages, but were associated with particular Seminole leaders or uh, the chiefs of the various towns and were linked to them through a tributary relationship where they would give a certain number or a certain amount of crops per year, numbers of bushels of corn and other agricultural produce to the Seminoles as tribute in exchange for protection by the Seminoles from the slave catchers or any other governmental attempt to reclaim the, the black Seminoles and return them to, to their owners. Dr. Terrence Week, an anthropologist from the University of South Carolina, studied the site of Pilakahaha a black Seminole town in what is today Sumner County. Here, he tells me what he found. I would say, you know, all in all, Pilica was a very small settlement. You know, 100 people is not a lot of people. When you start thinking about families, you know, that probably could have meant like maybe 10 families even. And the overall surface area of the site was probably about half the size of a football field at the most. It was a small-scale society. You know, they were family groups living there, and um, there was this individual who's well-known clearly in, in Florida history, Mikanopi, who had at least one or two wives who resided at Pelicacaja, so that was also something um, important because of his stature, um, but also the fact that people were intermarrying to a certain extent in the tribe and with the African Seminoles. Dr. Week also consulted military records to learn more about Pilakahaha. One U.S. Indian official who traveled through the region, and um, they described, you know, 100 people living there. They described a very rich resource base in terms of crops, you know, rice and beans and corn and other things, large herds of animals, you know, horses, cattle, and, and other animals. Clearly, you know, they had the ability to fend for themselves and some self-sufficiency in terms of their food base. They likely um, were mi very migratory, you know, in terms of well, it was very helpful for people who had escaped, you know, to understand the importance of mobility, you know, and to be prepared to use that as a strategy throughout. They didn't likely build walls. The military reports of General Eustace, who I read his field notes up at the National Archives, He's the one, his forces are, are, are the one that destroyed Pelicocaja in 1836. They got there about two weeks after people had been gone, though, you know, from what he says. I interviewed Dr. Brent Wiseman and Dr. Terrence Week, as well as others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. Look for it on iTunes. That was Dr. Brent Wiseman and Dr. Terrence Week, and I am Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society to get our daily posts today in Florida history and a lot more. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to read our weekly blog version of Florida Frontiers. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.